Let me tell you about one of my favorite places each week I get to go there. It's right outside those doors in between services. Seriously. I love being in that place, and I get to do it every week to greet dozens, if not hundreds, of people. The Lord gives me this surge of gregariousness. So it's like I want to shake hands. I want to hug people. I want to say, hey, hey, how's it going? How's it going? Good to see you. Are you new here? I have always thought this was a very special pastoral gift that I have that the Lord has anointed me with this gift. A couple years ago, I was with my mom, who's now 89 years old. She was in this senior living place. And I'm watching my mom, and I never noticed this before. But she's like greeting everybody, the cook, the chef, the, new, the people in the, in the home. And she's like, hi, how you doing? How's it going? How you? Good to see you. Are you new here? And it hit me. My mom is just like me. <laughs> or maybe I'm just like my mom. And it hit me, this is not my skill. This is not my achievement. This is not my gift. I'm not the owner of this. I'm just a recipient of it. I'm like a funnel that I got this from my mom, either through genetics or through her modeling or a combination of both, but I'm not the owner. You get a little slice in that story of what Jesus is talking about in this parable from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20, the parable that's sometimes called the parable of the wicked tenants, which should be more appropriately called the parable of the long-suffering vineyard owner, is really it's kind of a shocking parable. It's violent. Three guys get beat up. Somebody gets murdered. And Jesus ends with the stone that will crush you. So that is probably some of the reasons why it doesn't rank in people's favorite parables of Jesus, like the parable of the prodigal son. But it, is, it was so important to the church that all three of the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all have it. All have it in almost exactly the same place, exactly the same time in Jesus' life. So it was very important to the early church. And there's a very simple message and very clear. Simply, you are not the owner. You're not the owner of your life. You're not the owner of your opportunities. You're not the owner of your money. You're not the owner of your um, privileges. You're not the owner of your opportunities. You're not the owner of your future. You're not the owner of your whole life. You get invited into the joy of being a tenant, being a tenant under the owner, the Lord Jesus. So Jesus in this parable, he's going to invite us into the long, glorious story of the Bible. The story of God choosing people to bless them, that they may be a blessing, that they may be his tenants to produce fruit for the glory of his name. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to page, the, the Bible's down there if you're kind of a read-along in your Bible kind of person, and if you're not, if this is the first time, you can do that. If you don't want to do that, 
Don't do it, so we're not going to keep track. But there's three things in this parable, three kind of main characters. There's the hostility of the tenants, there's the lavish love of the owner, and then there is the invitation of the son at the end of this. So let's look at the hostility of the tenants. What's the first thing you notice about a tenant and the tenants in this story? Well, the most basic thing is they're not owners. They don't own this vineyard. Verse 9, when Jesus began to tell the parable this, this, to this people, he said, a man planted a vineyard and lent it out to tenants. He planted it. In, Gospels, in Matthew's gospel, he adds, he not only planted it, he put a fence around it, he dug a wine press, he built a tower. It was his initiative. He set it up. He's the Lord of the vineyard. What's the vineyard? What is this? Because Jesus is telling an old, familiar story. He's picking up on a familiar image that everybody in his audience would have known. Immediately, they would have thought of Isaiah chapter 5, among some other passages, but in particular, Isaiah chapter 5, which was our first scripture reading. And Jesus, what he's going to do is he's going to do something a bit shocking to the people of his day. He's actually going to insert himself into this familiar story. We'll see how he does that. But Isaiah chapter 5, it begins this. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. First thing we know about the story of the Bible is it is a love story. And God is our beloved. And God, this story that we find in Isaiah 5 is God's love for the Jewish people, his chosen people. That he has loved them, he's crazy about them, he's always loved them, he still loves them. Verse 2, he, the vineyard owner, dug, dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Do you hear the story? Jesus' parable there, especially Matthew's version with the extra actions of the vineyard owner. He was looking for fruit. You should. You own, the vin you own the vineyard. You should expect fruit. God called the chosen people in Genesis chapter 12. I bless you, and I want you to be a blessing to the world. What was that fruit supposed to look like? We'll look again at the end of, uh, of Isaiah chapter 5. It says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. So sometimes Israel is the vineyard, sometimes vine Israel is the vineyard workers. And the Lord looked for justice. In Isaiah chapter 1, he was looking for justice for the widow, justice for the orphan, justice for the oppressed, justice for the poor. It was kind of a social holiness. But he was also, but, he, but instead he found bloodshed. He found oppression. He found the shedding of innocent blood. He was looking for righteousness, it says in Isaiah 5, 7. He was looking for holiness of life, people living according to the covenant laws of Yahweh. But they weren't. Instead, there was an outcry. So Jesus is picking up on this parable, and like Isaiah, 
He's retelling it in his own day. And it begins in verse 10, when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. That's logical. You should expect that. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Actually, as we continue to read, this happens three times. And if you read it carefully, read the text carefully, there's increasing levels of violence. So the second time, they treat the servant shamefully. The third time, it says that they wounded him. The Greek word is literally traumatizo. They traumatize him. The guy comes back with PTSD. They have beat him so badly. What is their problem? Well, something shifted, something happened, which happens to any follower of the living God. It can happen to us today. Something happened with the religious and spiritual leaders of Jesus' day. They started to think that the vineyard was theirs, that they were the owners of the vineyard, not the tenants. And Jesus, following Isaiah, is going to point us to the absolute absurdity and the outrageousness of living as a tenant and not an owner. Now, zoom in to the original context, but I also want to zoom out and ask us, well, what about us? You know, the first time I read this, many times I read this, I go, oh, wow, those religious leaders are so far off the mark. How could they be so nasty? I'm not like them. I'm not that way. I'm nice. I like God. You know, I, I want God. I'm an honest seeker. Here's what the Bible says. No, we're not. We're not honest seekers. Actually, all of us are really conflicted. We want God. We're drawn to God as the source of beauty and truth and goodness. But then we're also repelled by this idea that God is going to be the owner of our lives. That doesn't sit well with many of us. The Apostle Paul put it this way in the book of Romans chapter 8. He said, for the mind that is set on the flesh... That's our normal human nature apart from the intervention, the supernatural intervention of the Holy Spirit. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. We cannot submit to God's law on our own. Earlier, St. Paul said we suppress the truth. We are all truth suppressors. So my natural bent apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, again, is that part of me is attracted to God, and part of me is, quite frankly, insulted, resistant, hostile, and angry to the thought that God is God. Isaiah and Jesus want us to see how outrageous this is, how absurd this is. Think of just a couple little examples. I'm not even dealing with spiritual aspects of our life. Just a couple small biological facts about your life. So for instance, when you were a baby in your mother's womb, you were developing neurons at 25,000 neurons. Let me make sure I get this right. 25,000 neurons a minute. Until today, when you have a hundred billion neurons with a trillion connections. 
Did you have anything to do with that? Was that you? The fact that you can think, the fact that you can sit here, the fact that you can see, the fact that you can hear, it's all a gift. You're going to sit here today, maybe 75, 80, 90 minutes. Your heart, a pump the size of the fist with four little valves, will open and close about 6,000 times while you're sitting here. You're not even thinking about it. Just ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. It's working. It's not you. This parable, Jesus wants us to see the outlandishness of thinking that our resources, our opportunities, our one life is somehow just my own. Growing as a follower of Jesus involves recognizing that I have a basic hostility and I need the work and the intervention of the Holy Spirit. And we would say here at Church of the Resurrection, I need the intervention of the sacraments. I need the intervention of what we're going to do around the Lord's table to open my heart, to soften my heart so I can surrender and acknowledge the living God as the owner and that I'm a joyful tenant. So that's the tenants. Then there's also the lavish, the lavish love of the owner. Now notice, in baseball, you get three strikes and you're out, right? These guys get three strikes and the owner should be done with them. Actually, he should be done with them after one strike. That would be fair. But the owner isn't about fairness. He's about grace. He's about mercy. So he sends the first servant. They beat him up. He sends a second service servant. They beat him up. They send a he sends a third servant. They beat him up. Let's just say, for example, that before I moved from Long Island, I opened a restaurant called Luigi's, because that's my middle name, Matt Luigi Woodley. Actually, it's not, but anyway. So let's say I opened this Italian restaurant. It's called Luigi's. We got the best baked lasagna on the East Coast. Well, I'm still running it. I got people that are still running it, managing it. So I send uh, Dean Steve. I said, Steve, you're going to New York on your sabbatical. Would you uh, pick me up some takeout baked lasagna? So he goes in there, and they beat him up. I'm going, okay, I'm going to send Father Brett, okay? So I send Father Brett. They beat him up. I am not sending anybody else at this point. I am not going to send Deacon Margie into this, okay? <laughs> I'm calling in the SWAT team. I'm calling the police. See, the hostility of the tenants is no match for the lavish love the steadfast love of the owner. It's one of the major motifs in the whole Old Testament. One of the most important words in the entire Old Testament is the, the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed means steadfast love. It occurs almost 250 times in the Hebrew scriptures. It means steadfast love, uh, persevering love, overcoming love, like you can't stop me from loving you kind of love. It's covenantal love. I've made a covenant with you. I've bound myself to you. I'm going to be your people. I, I, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people, and I am not going to renege on that. So God says to the Jewish people over and over again, I am crazy about you. You drive me nuts a lot of the times, but I'm crazy about you. I always have been, and I always will be. So he sends three servants, but the story's not done yet. Look at verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, 
What shall I do? Now, it's funny because God never thought, like when we fell into sin, when we sin against him, God never thought, like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? I didn't see that coming. Jesus is called the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. So this is, there's a little comedy in this story. He says, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. And who is the son? Obviously, it's Jesus. It's Jesus is the son. Jesus is the one that Hebrews tells us that in, in former days God spoke to us in many and diverse ways through the prophets, but now he has spoken to us in the son. The maker of all things. Jesus said, when you see me, you've seen the Father. In the Gospel of Matthew, he is called Emmanuel, God with us. He is going to send him to live the life that we should have lived, to die the death that we should have died, to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God. What incredible good news. But you got to ask yourself, why would he think that they will respect his son? Based upon what evidence? You are hopelessly naive. Don't you realize these people are surly? They're hostile. They're violent. They don't like you. They don't want you. But he sends his son anyway. It is just quite simply crazy love. As one scholar says, it's intentional in this parable. The lengths that God will go to reach us Ungrateful fools as we are, and yet God's faithfulness is greater than our folly. So that's the hostility. Then there's the invitation of the Son. Jesus doesn't want us to just know certain things about this parable. He wants us to respond, and the whole way that this, the literary structure of this is left us hanging with a question that we will wrestle with and that we will pray about and that we will respond to. I'll get to that in just a minute, but look at the end of this parable. So in verse 15, and they threw him, that's the son, out of the vineyard and they killed him. Clear reference to what Jesus is gonna do at the cross. And what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, in the original context, Jesus is talking to a certain group of spiritual and religious leaders of his day. This passage has often been interpreted, and I've interpreted this passage in the past, to say that basically what this passage is saying is God is done with the Jewish people. He tried them. They didn't work out. Now he's fired them. He's canceled them, and now he's moving on to the Gentiles, and he's going to try it over again with the Gentiles. That's what we call replacement theology, and that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach that at all. I wish I had more time to go into this, but as my friend... Thomas, my Jewish believing in Jesus as Messiah friend, tells me, Matt, the point of this parable, the point of the whole scriptures is not that the Jewish people are the heroes of the story, not that the Gentiles are the heroes of the story, but that Jesus is the hero of the story, but also that the living God does not renege on his covenant and his promises. So he's still crazy in love with the Jewish people, and he still has a plan for them. He's not done with them because he does not cancel his covenants. Look at how this parable ends, verse 17. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is talking about himself. Notice what, use, what word he used to describe what's going to happen to him. I will be rejected. Back in Luke chapter 9, Jesus also said, I will be rejected by all the religious leaders, by all the powerful people. 
it, this word rejected becomes a one word, tiny little summary for the entire passion narrative of Jesus' death on the cross. That, little, that whole passion narrative that we're going to read coming up in Holy Week is, is contained in that one little word. So what right does Jesus have to be the cornerstone of my life? Well, first, he's the owner of the vineyard, but also he's a lover. He's the redeemer. He's the savior. He's the one that was rejected for me and for you. He was the one who was willing to descend into hell for us, to save us. So look at this, the last verse of this, this parable, verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Again, it's just not a very nice, happy ending, is it? But I think Jesus is provoking us, provoking us to reflection, provoking us to prayer, provoking us to thinking about our lives and what our lives are like. There was a Jewish proverb around the time of Jesus, a midrash, that said, if a stone, if a big stone falls on a clay pot, alas for the pot. If a clay pot falls on a big stone, alas for the pot. Either way, if the pot's going head to head with a stone, it's going down. Jesus is saying, we're the clay pot. Jesus is the stone. Think of it this way. Life will break you one way or another. Is there anybody over 40 that doubts that statement? Is there anybody over 20 that doubts that statement? Maybe you're saying, no, not me. I'm young, I'm healthy, I'm rich, I'm smart, I'm competent. Life will not break me. No. We're the clay pot. We are more fragile than we would ever dare to admit. Relationships can break us. The violence of the world can break us. Disappointment and heartache. I remember once listening to a story with a, the poet and essayist Mary Carr, and she was talking about, she said something to the effect that nobody gets through life without heartache. It might be something that happened in your family. It might be something that's going on in your life right now. Everybody has heartache. Everybody gets broken. And death is the ultimate breaking. So one of the things Jesus is saying here, and actually I have some Old Testament evidence for here that I don't have, to, I don't have time to unpack it, but trust me on this. Jesus is saying you can be broken on something else. You will be broken on something else or you can be broken on me. I am the one that restores. I am the one that makes all things new. When you land on me, and it feels like your life might shatter, when you land on me, you are ultimately landing on the one that can forgive you and restore you and put the broken pieces back together. Don't you want that rather than what life might do to you? Again, this ending implies a question. Where is your life? Where is my life? Do I live more like an owner? Or do I live more like a tenant? A joyful tenant? A liberated tenant? A son or a daughter tenant? A free tenant? A loved and cherished tenant? 
You know, maybe you're, so if you're young, you might be asking questions like, where am I going to go to school? Am I going to go to college? If I don't go to college, will I learn some kind of trade? Will I start a business? Will I get married? Who will I get married to? If I'm in college, what will be my major? Where am I going to live? Am I going to move? Really important questions. As we get older, we ask questions like, am I going to retire? What am I going to do when I retire? What am I going to do with my inheritance? How am I going to set up my will? How am I going to prepare for my death? I think Jesus wants to put one question ahead of all of those really good and important questions. One question to rule them all, we might say. Simply, do I want to be an owner? Do I want to live like an owner? Or do I want to live like a tenant? When we get that straight, everything in the Christian life flows from that. What will you love? What you spend your money on? What you spend your time on? How you relate to the church? How you treat the poor? How you treat the underserved? How you treat your neighbor? What you do with your sexuality? It all lines up under how you answer that question. So again, Jesus leaves it hanging. What about you? What about me? Do you want to live as an owner? Or do you want the freedom and the joyful responsibility and the joyful life of a tenant? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.